Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Taking of the Gry by John Macefield. This is the third part of the reading and we're on chapter three. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. The Taking of the Gry, Part 3 At breakfast later that morning, the talk was all of what had happened to bring the fleet there. Our wireless man got Trinidad after a time and came in during breakfast to tell us that there was an unconfirmed rumour that the Santa Ana fleet being dissatisfied with the unconstitutional methods of the president, had renounced their oaths and had taken the fleet out of Santa Ana Harbour under fire of the forts and that a situation of some obscurity existed. Old Peters, the chief, took the view that they had been guilty of mutiny. I suggested that if the president had exceeded his lawful powers, the fleet had obeyed the law in refusing to obey him, As I was junior there, I got it pretty hot, but stuck to it. Whatever happens, old Peters said, we shall be warned off these Santa Ana ports for some time, or till this trouble ends. We shall be warned out of Puno, you see, and some of our ships will be laid up, you'll see. It's very bad for business, this kind of tomfoolery. But as it's always done by men who don't work, but are worked for, and as they don't have to foot the bills, it will go on, I suppose. In any case, he added, I suppose it comes to blows in the end in some quarrels, whatever efforts are made for peace. And in any case, this can't go on long. A fleet can't fight the rest of the state. At this, a discussion began, for I, who was all for Tom and Tom's side, maintained that for the matter of that, a president and an army couldn't fight the rest of the state, and that Santa Anna, being a coastline with a mountain range just behind it, was at the mercy of a fleet holding the coast. Mercy be damned, they said to me. What can the fleet do? Hold up commerce? I'd like to see them try it. If they try that, they'll have all the continental and American powers protesting. What else can they do? Attack Santa Ana? They can't. Ships can't fight forts. That's been proved time and time again. Besides, as likely as not, Santa Barbara will come in against them, send a fleet to Puno, mop them up and proceed to make the two lands one. I see what will happen, old Peters said. Nothing spectacular. The fleet will lie at Puno for a while, then the president's agents will bribe the crews into giving up their officers, who will be shot, and then it will all fizzle out. I suppose that the other men in the mess either believed this or felt that the chief should be supported against a junior. They agreed with old Peters that that would be the end of the rebellion. I said that war didn't happen as people expected, but quite otherwise, and that no war yet in history had gone according to plan. Well, the second officer said, after all, a large part of war must be supply. If this navy has rebelled, and you might remember that the rumour isn't yet confirmed, it will only have so much supply as the naval base can give, which won't be much. The fleet will be like King Charles I. He may have had the right on his side, but he couldn't supply his side, and the Parliament could. That is so, Peter said. I give them a week, ten days at most, Santa Barbara will move, the foreign powers will complain, the chiefs will see their impotence, and they will either escape or be given up. If you ask me, they are just simply pirates. Well, 
we left the matter there. We went on in the track of the fleet towards Puno, which we reached towards sunset. As we drew near, a naval dispatch ship, a smart steam yacht painted naval grey with QF guns upon her and flying the SA colours, bore down upon us, replied to our salute and hailed us that Puno was closed to general traffic and that we were to avoid an area now mined that a state of war existed between the Navy and the presidential forces and that, in short, we were to follow her straight away through the dangerous area. There was no mistaking this. War was declared, so we followed as bidden. The Rora hailed the officer for news of the O'Duffy, but received no answer. No doubt it was a sore point. We heard no further news till we reached Santa Barbara next day. We were ordered by wireless to avoid Cape Catouche. Our passengers were in a ferment and quarrelled amongst themselves. I often thought that some of them would come to knives about it, but somehow the Rora was always there at the critical point and no one had his throat cut. At Santa Barbara, as we came in over the entrance, our agent boarded us. He had us into the mess and harangued us. This war which has broken out has not been unforeseen. It has been brewing for a long time and has been prepared for by the company, who have to expect certain contingencies, which may or may not happen. The chances are that it will not last long without certain interference by other powers. In any case, we of green and silvers are and must be neutral, and in order to avoid any difficulty or danger besetting neutrals in time of war, our sailings to the Santa Ana ports are now cancelled. We must ask you gentlemen to accept the arrangements which have been made for you. As the Santa Ana sailings are cancelled, we shall take this opportunity of putting the Aquindo into dry dock at Monte, she being now very grassy, sending the Hernando Cortez home to have her engines repaired and laying off some of the staff upon full pay for the next month or until the situation clears up a little. I hung about until the seniors had finished with him and then asked him if he had had any news of the Almirante O'Duffy. Oh yes, he said, the flagship? She didn't rebel. She was the only ship that didn't. Did she stay then in Santa Ana? I asked. Yes, of her own will. She's there. Did they try to take her? I asked. I believe they tried something, he said, but it was nipped in the bud, I think. That was all that I could learn from him. It was not cheerful news. I could only suppose that Tom had tried something and been nipped in the bud, probably by a firing squad on the Presidio beach. However, there was work to be done, to turn the ship over before going down to Monte. I was busy enough all the rest of that day. In the evening, I was told that I was to be laid off, for the present, upon full pay, and that a room was reserved for me at the club, if I cared to go there, so I went ashore to the club and took the room, and then in the club library went through the files of the papers, trying to find news of Tom or of his flagship. There was no account that I could find of any fighting or of people killed or wounded, one paper said that the Almirante O'Duffy had been saved to Santa Anna by the loyalty of her marines and engine room staff, who had put the disloyal officers ashore and brought the ship under the batteries of the army. If this were true, I reckoned that Tom would have been shot. I went out from the reading room, broken-hearted, wandered the streets till I was faint, passed a wretched night at the club, and in the morning went out again to try to walk off my misery. I never liked Santa Barbara. It is very grand, very ample and splendid, with squares of palaces and many very beautiful churches, all made under the direction of the old dictator, who died just long enough ago to make his work disgusting to men of today. 
It was a commonplace of talk, and all that he had done was now being undone, and all that he had tautened was now being slackened. But of course, it is beautiful, and the gardens and the aquarium are wonderful, and the old curiosity shops on the seafront where they sell the old Indian and Spanish things are worth the going to see. The Indian jars and picture histories with actual portraits of some of the conquerors and the ironwork of the conquerors' houses, all these are strange. But in two days, I loathe the city and the men in it, and I think life itself. No news of the civil war came through, only the usual leaders by the enemy that in a few days the misguided rebels would reap the penalty of their treasons. All opinion in Santa Barbara was dead against the rebels. The papers urged urgent intervention, destruction of the rebellious fleet and emerging of the two republics, prelude, let us hope, to the establishment of a United States of the South. I raged at all this. I stood it for two days and then determined to get to sea so that I should not always be thinking of Tom. I took a boat and went the round of all the British ships in the port to ask if they wanted a junior officer. Of course, I had my trouble for nothing. In that time of war and uncertainty, the shipping world was overmanned and no one wanted my wares. I saw some fine ships and met some very rude captains and pulled back in my shore boat to the mole. As I drew near to the stairs, the newsboys suddenly came racing along from the offices, crying that there had been a most bloody naval battle at Santa Ana. I bought a paper from a boy, found a bench in the shade in the seafront garden and read the bare news received officially from Santa Ana that the rebellious naval forces had made a determined attack there to cut out the cruiser, the Almirante O'Duffy, which had refused to follow the fleet into rebellion. The attack, so the account ran, had been repulsed with heavy loss to the rebels, who had lost their flagship, the Almirante Moro, sunk by a loyalist torpedo. It occurred to me that the rebel flagship was the Almirante Bazan, but I knew that the Moro was her sister ship, and that her loss would be a cruel blow to Tom's cause. If this should be true, I thought, it would mean that their game's about up. I was inclined to think it true, but a kind of glimmer was within me, that the news came from Santa Anna, where many might like it to be thought true. Even before our war, I had the wit to doubt official news. I thought that I would wait till I had seen the next morning's papers and the ticker at the club. Besides, at the club... One met all sorts of experienced merchants, shippers, consuls, as well as seamen, who would in some odd way contrive to get the facts and the inner story before the rest of the world. From them, if I listened adroitly, as I thought, I might gather the truth. Then I thought, couldn't I go to Puno and join these rebels? Tom's gone, I suppose, but one of his kin might bear a hand for him and give those devils a knock before the game's up. That old hauling son kept ringing my ears. Tom's gone, so I'll go too. Tom's gone to Hilo. Then I suddenly decided that I would go to Puno and offer my services. After all, I was qualified, as well as a naval reservist, and quite willing to serve without pay. I knew that all sailings to Puno had ceased, but I had money enough for the railway journey across the Sierras. At the station, they told me that the bookings had been cancelled and that the Trans-Sierra trains were no longer running. The railway men would not or could not tell me very much. They shrugged their shoulders and grimaced and spread their hands. Who knows? Who can tell? Reasons of state. No civilian ticket within 50 miles of the frontier, so it is ordained. When I asked for a ticket to 50 miles from the frontier, they spread their hands and said, There are no trains. When I asked, When would there be trains? They fell back at once on, 
Who knows? Tomorrow, you ask, perhaps tomorrow. You will remember, no doubt, that kind of thing from the days of war. I went to the club and had a look at the ticker, which gave me no fuller details. The evening papers came in at intervals, all against the naval rebels, magnifying the president's victory and urging the Santa Barbara government to seize this opportunity of bringing the two republics into one fraternal fold. Peters came in as I was reading. Well, he said, in his dry, ramrod manner, looking like one of these soldiers, your friends have lost the morrow. That will be about the end of their rebellion, I take it. The president has the O'Duffy, and of course he has all the army besides. Well, the army won't be much good to him, I said, on the general principle that an army isn't much good to anyone. I'm afraid it will shoot your cousin, he said. And my cousin's dead, I said savagely. I'm sorry, he said gently, but you'd rather that than he should be shot as rebels always are. Like Oliver Cromwell and George Washington, I called out after him, but I'm afraid the shot missed. The club filled up in the evening when the offices closed. Men came in for billiards or news or a rubber of bridge. By going from card room to billiard room and then back into the reading room, I could get a clear impression of English feeling about the rebellion. It was all hostile to the receding navy, almost without exception. It was all exultant that the rebels should have taken a knock. This was easy to understand, of course. The English took the national line that it is unthinkable that the navy should rebel. Any navy that rebels, they said, ceases to be a navy and becomes a piratical force. These fellows aren't rebels now, they're pirates, and it would be quite in accord with justice that an international force or the Santa Barbara fleet should go in and just mop them up, scupper the lot of them. I found this strain of talk very hard to bear. However, I listened because the talk was often picturesque and forceful and helped me to understand the forces at work and the currents of policy. As the night came on, I found the bar the best place for talk. It was a great, cool room set about with wicker chairs. The bar was on one side of it, very bright and clean, with palms at each end and servers mixing the cocktails. There were many men there at midnight and most of the talk was of the rebellion. Presently, a big man of early middle age came in. He was in full evening dress and even in that showed a costliness and a rarity not usual on the coast. He was very handsome and yet there was a wild look about his eyes which showed that he was a drinker. He was somewhat flushed from wine as he entered. Men looked at him for he was well known there and indeed he had been in the Aquindo coming from Cholula and I knew him. He was one of Lansons and Grails, big shipping people. Hello Bert, he called to a man near me. I've been dining with the president. He's got a new champagne. Whew, don't touch it. Keep to his claret. I've heard all about the war, though. Damn dirty hounds, those rebels, what? Bert, who was an astute-looking man, rosy and rosé, with an orchid in his buttonhole, asked, with a strong Scotch accent, what the rebels had been up to now. The other let fly at once, not so much to Bert as to the room in general. Been up to, he said? Well, something that they may think magnificent, but it isn't war. They crept into Santa Ana and sank three torpedo boats without warning as they lay at anchor, with their crews asleep. Damned sporting, I must say, to murder sleeping men in their beds, but they didn't get much by it. I'm glad to think, except a damned swift knock in the neck. The Moro sunk and all her crew captured. If the president has any sense, he'll take the prisoners from the Moro, try the lot of them for murder and shoot them. I was in Bonnie's just now, the old Scotchman said. He said he wasn't so sure there were any prisoners. 
Well, if they're all drowned, so much the better. It'll save the executioners a dirty job. Bonnie didn't think they were drowned. Bonnie thought the rebels had got them off. Well, not likely when they were flying for their lives. Maybe no, yet a shrewd wee Italiano man, yon Bonnie, he's got a wean queer way of knowing the fact. Well, the man snorted, I hope to God he's wrong this time. These damned murderous rebels ought to get what they're asking for. A thing the president's hot over is they're going into Santa Ana, a place all jammed with neutral shipping and starting a naval battle there, as though it were a damned prize ring. Well, Bonnie was saying that they warned all the neutrals that a state of war existed, the old Scotchman went on. I'm not saying that that justifies rebellion or what they did, which I only know from the papers, but when a lad wants a scrap, any place in the world will suit him for a prize ring. And as for saying that they murdered yon torpedo wallers in their beds, that's not true. They'd no business to be in their beds. No soldier or sailor or businessman, for that matter, can be excused for being surprised. That's the first thing a man of action has to learn. By God, Bert, the man said, you talk like the liberal press. Those fellows in the torpedo boats were these rebels' shipmates and very likely messmates and relations. It makes me sick, but I must have a drink and see to Jones. He moved away out of the room and left the company stirred to offer inside information about the battle. You know, a man said, the old chargers got it wrong about that battle in Santa Ana. The president and his friends here may be making a big mistake. Well, I'll be going home to roost. He nodded to one or two and walked out, leaving me with a feeling that here and there, even in Santa Barbara, there were one or two who took the side of the rebels. And from what he had said, and from what the charger had said, I began to have other views of this naval battle. It had been a dash, of course, to try to carry off the Almirantio Duffy from the very heart of the enemy's harbour, and that plan had been defeated. But some presidential torpedo boats had been sunk, and I knew that without these torpedo boats, the O'Duffy might well be unable to proceed to sea at all, and might therefore be out of action till the end of the war, for which advantage the Moro was not too big a price to pay. Ah, Tom, I thought, your side has not had much luck, but it has all the dash and all the genius. However much of a mucker your friends will come, they'll be in the stories in the days to be. Would to God I had been with you at your end, as I might have been if I had taken your offer. I was wearily thinking of going to bed, I didn't expect to sleep, when Rora Bosbury came in. Ah, Talton, he said, I was looking for you. I've just heard from Peters that you say your poor cousin has been killed. I'm very sorry. I was much attached to your cousin. He was often with us at one time or another. Have you had news, though? How was he killed? Sir, I said, I do not know that he has been killed. I only think it. He was in the O'Duffy and not likely to have been spared. Oh, don't lose hope, he said. But it's wiser not to hope too much. But... I was looking for you about another matter, which I can't help hoping will interest you. I've been asked by a man here if I could recommend anyone to take charge of a lorry train going south with machinery to the mines, starting at dawn tomorrow. You would be just the man. You'd be back in a week. The lorry men are mostly Welsh miners, and a bit of a handful to keep sober. Otherwise, it might be a picnic. I think if you'd like it, come with me and I'll introduce you to Mr Hurley. I said I would like the job and thanked him for his thought of me. So at one in the morning I took over the lorry train and at dawn started with it and had a rough picnic for the next week with neither news nor rumours but a continual jolting on bad roads and a tough gang of drivers to keep sober. 
plenty of landscape to look at, to take my thought off Tom and a good experience but for the dust and the biting things. When I got back a week later, I heard it said at the club that the Morrow had not been torpedoed but had struck a mine and that though she had been sunk, most of her people had been saved and that though the expedition had not taken the O'Duffy, it had cut out and towed away with singular dash and under a heavy fire the storeship Atahulpa laden with artificers' equipment of all kinds. Ah, I said to myself, the rebels have had a victory or at least a success then. There had been no other fighting. I went to the station to ask about trains to the Santa Ana frontier. I found that while I had been away, the railways had been militarized. Any place within a hundred miles of the frontier was now called within the zone and forbidden to civilians. In the club, a man told me that a war fever was being foisted in the press and that probably Santa Barbara would have declared war upon the rebels and advanced with the Santa Ana troops to crush them had the army been ready for action. But you'll see all there is in the press, he said. No news really. It is all censored or doctored up. I took up that morning's copy of the El Impartial and found that it was as he had said. At the foot of the first page, I read the following. Important seizure. The Dutch steamer Gry, which put in for coal yesterday, bearing a large consignment of modern rifles and their ammunition for the rebel headquarters at El Puno, has been stopped and impounded at Santa Barbara at the request of the president of Santa Ana. These munitions have been purchased by the rebels' agents in the Republic of Monteverde and were designed to have a decisive influence upon the conflict. We understand that rebel agents have protested against the seizure of the ship and cargo, but undoubtedly the case is one in which the impartial tribunals of international law must be invoked. The Gry has been placed upon moorings in the inner harbour. Her officers and crew pending the inquiry have been landed and given quarters in the naval barracks. I read this for the first time with the feeling that it was very rough luck on the rebels to have their arms impounded and that it might well lose them the war. When I read it through a second time I thought... Why should a ship from Monteverde put into Santa Barbara for coal? And at once, I leaped to the conclusion that the captain of the Gry had betrayed the cargo for money down. In the club bar, that evening, I heard a man saying, Funny thing about that Dutch ship with the munitions. Her captain cabled Rivas at the embassy to ask what he would pay for a chance to impound ship and cargo. Rivas quoted him 5,000 of the best, and the chap came up to see him and drew the cash at Marul, before he ever sailed from Monte. Not quite cricket, what? But a knock for the rebels. The other man agreed that it would be a fatal knock for the rebels. All the talk of the bar was on those lines, that the rebels had had a knock, and that the sooner they got hanged on sour apple trees, the sooner the world could get back to trade. Early the next morning, as I had nothing to do, I walked down to the waterfront to look at the ships and to see if there were any English ships newly in to which I could offer my services. As I walked there, I thought that I would take a boat and run out to look at the Gry. Apart from her link with the rebels' cause, her name interested me, for though one of the men at the club had said that it was a Dutch proper name, perhaps the name of her original builder and owner, it is also a gypsy word meaning horse, and I was interested and wondered whether her name were a gypsy name. I had had a little to do with gypsies when I was a lad, before I went to sea. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube 
and The Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>